Well, someone has said that uh, if you can do the following, see what this means. Um, if you can start the day without caffeine, I know 80% of us are out already. If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people, uh, I'm sorry, I, did, I said that the wrong way. If you can resist complaining and, complaining and boring people with your troubles, that wasn't supposed to be about boring people. <clears throat> it may say something about me. Um, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it. If you can understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment. If you can resist treating a rich friend better than a poor friend. If you can face the world without lies and deceit. If you can overlook it when those you love take it out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong. If you can conquer tension without medical help. If you can say honestly that deep in your heart you have no prejudice, prejudice against creed, color, religion, or politics. Then, my friend, you are almost as good as a dog. Humility, we've been studying in uh, Philippians chapter 2, and that little glimpse of a humbling perspective is good for our souls just when we think we've got it all together. Humility, I think, could fairly be defined as the courage to be exactly what God has called you to be, nothing more and nothing less in each and every circumstance where he has pla placed you, all for the sheer pleasure of knowing him. That's humility, a right estimation of ourself, a right estimation of God, a right motivation that ends in a right acting out of all he has called and made us to be, nothing more nor less. That's a genuine humility. And it is an extraordinary calling, isn't it? It is a, uh, a high calling. Here in Philippians, we have seen the beauty of humility by God's grace, how God rewards it and brings glory to us through it and, and brings glory to himself through it, how Christ is the mind of genuine humility, the gain of laying aside privilege, the honor of being a servant that he showed us, the life-giving reward of full and unmitigated obedience to the Father's will he showed us, all this and more. But the beauty of humility and the unity that it makes so attractive cannot be easily won on our own, can they? It's hard, not even as good as a dog. But the Spirit knows Spirit knows this, and so the Spirit inspires Paul to meet us again at this point in the middle of Philippians chapter 2 with the encouragement of a divine energy that helps make this possible, a divine pursuit of this in us, which rather than doing on our own, we instead can allow him to do in and through us and get in line with, and that changes everything. Paul reiterates here then the unflinching call to this completely otherworldly understanding of ourselves, but then he immediately gives us the reminder of, of God's work in us to make it happen. Pick up with me in Philippians chapter 2, 
And we'll read our passage this morning, starting in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, Paul writes, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Pause there. What hope do we have then to progress in this high calling of humility, in this deep, in this battle against the most deeply seated part of me in my corruption that that is naturally prideful. What hope do we have in this area of our sanctification, or in fact in any area, to grow in Christ-likeness? Well, that is what our passage now addresses today. First, we see here in verse 12, this is our first hope. If you know Christ, as Paul tells these brothers and sisters in Philippi, grace is not done saving you. Grace is not done saving you. Verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul begins by commending these brothers and sisters. First, we see Paul's care. He, he addresses them as, as his beloved ones. Writing here from prison, we have seen how well he has modeled this humility and this interest in others as, con- as he continually just speaks to them with a love and an outpouring shepherd's heart. Not, not just in complaint, not just uh, consumed by his own circumstances, which are dire, but rather very much concerned for them. And so here he does it again. So then, my beloved, after speaking of the glorious Christ who humbled himself, And now is exalted to the highest of all places and calling them for that sake to stoop, to serve, to to love others and put them first. And all in the effort to pursue humility, he takes a step back. And and can you imagine him as as a good father throwing his arm around their shoulder and saying, so then, my dear loved ones, let's talk about how you're going to do this. Let's, let's come and counsel together and reason. What's it going to take for you and I to grow in this area and in any area? He calls them beloved. Notice not only his care, but notice his encouragement. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. The first thing he says on the heels of this impossible calling to humble ourselves like Christ has done it for us, as he speaks of their obedience, he speaks of their faithfulness. Paul loves these Christians in Philippi, and he's already seen them suffer, and he knows well of the faithfulness of their witness. And so he wants to return to that now. And notice the, the distinction he makes. He wants them to continue in their faith, but, but something has changed since before when he knew their obedience, before when he saw their faithfulness, what has changed is that he's now no longer with them. 
You have been faithful. You have obeyed when I've been with you. Now, how much more while I'm gone, he says. Having a strong Christian leader around makes it easier. It's a huge encouragement to follow Christ. Having brothers in Christ at your side, having sisters in Christ to gird you up, right, is a huge encouragement to walk in obedience. This is why it's so terribly important for us to regularly gather together and sing God's praises and hear God's word and practice the sacraments, oh yes, but also just to come together in fellowship, right, because we need it. It's a huge encouragement, the community of God in Christ. Paul says, even though you may be apart from me now, you are not apart from Christ. You are not apart from your resource. You are not apart from the work of the one who makes all the difference. So just as you have obeyed when I was around, so now how much more when, when I'm not? How many of us have had that experience at some point in our lives where we've left the shelter of friends and family, left the shelter of Christian community, and, and had that thought in our mind, maybe for the first time ever, consciously, you know what, there's, there's nobody around to see what I do. There, there, there's no one noticing. There's no one holding me accountable. The, uh, you know, the old uh, mariners, the sailors, had a, uh, had a phrase I think it was the Rock of Gibraltar, if I remember the right landmark. I might have it confused. Anyway, their phrase goes something like this. The men would say of one another, uh, past Gibraltar, all men are bachelors. You understand how terrible that statement is, don't you? Beyond Gibraltar, no man is married anymore because who's around to hold him accountable? Who's around to see what he will do with his life. But the thing is, there's somebody who's always around. And for us who know Christ, that's not only terrifying, but terribly, terribly encouraging that he never leaves us and he's continuing his good work. Paul says, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And then he gives them the reason for this encouragement. He tells them the resource that is always with them. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I've uh, titled this verse with the, uh, with the word for grace because I'm keying on the idea of salvation here. I'm basically only going to say one thing this morning, but Lord willing, I'll say it so many different times in so many different ways that you can't forget it. So uh, that's my whole secret for today. I'm using the word grace here because Paul already, chapter 1, verse 7, has said, you are partakers of grace with me. And then he closes up chapter 1, speaking of how they, they, they bear themselves, how they carry themselves through adversity and suffering. He says, this is just a confirmation of your salvation. The point is, these who have been born again and now know Christ, have experienced grace. And he encapsulates that with salvation. And he tells them to to work it out. What's the point? The point here is that the grace that has saved you, Paul says, is still saving you. The grace that saved you isn't 
now done, now that you're a child of God, now that you are an heir of the promises, now that you know the Father and you'll be with him forever in the kingdom. Grace is not done. Oh, no, grace has only begun its work of saving you. Salvation is just beginning for the believer when we come to Christ. And so, though he says, I may not be with you, everything you need is with you. In your salvation, the grace is there with you. But what you need to do is now work it out. Many pastors, preachers, commentators, and others have said the picture here is working out what God has worked in. And that's not entirely inappropriate. That's a decent, simple enough way to think of it. None of, none of that's in the language per se, but, but the idea is correct. There is a deposit of grace that once given to the believer, never ceases to continue its work. The book of Jude talks about us being kept by God. Um, I believe it's uh, Paul's writing in Timothy or Titus that, that speaks of the work of grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness. See how grace is continuing its work to hold us, to keep us, to change us. That's the point. Grace is never done saving the believer. Uh, this passage that we come to this morning is now the second of three times in the book of Philippians that Paul will talk about um, the sovereign grace of God at work in us, and he'll build upon that. The, the, the sovereign pleasure of God in working in each and every one of his children will be the foundation that Paul will build on. Uh, back in chapter 1, it was, he who began a good work in you, right, will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. Now here in chapter 2, he's telling them to work. Why? Because God is working. There's no work that we are capable of doing on our own, but if he is working, then we can now work and build upon that foundation of his sovereign grace. Why do we need this? Because the Lord doesn't save and make us children simply so that he can bring us in that state into his eternal presence. Oh, he could, and on some occasion he might. But part of his work in salvation is also transformation, isn't it? He will take us where we are, but he will not leave us there, right? And so what that means is the work of grace in saving us is constantly about the business of revealing to us our need, constantly about the work of conforming and creating in us, conforming our desires and creating in us new desires, and then through, a, through those sanctifying us and changing us. Grace is not done saving you. We sometimes get surprised, don't we? about where our sin takes us. It happened in the life of uh, King Saul. Uh, early, early on, he, he made what he thought was a, a mild mistake, a simple error. Um, he was told to completely obey God, and he mostly obeyed. And he thought, I've done pretty well. And the prophet Samuel came and he told him, that disobedience is as rebellion and not listening to the word of the Lord is as the sin of divination. King Saul at the time would have thought, are you kidding me? 
<laughs> divination, to, to pursue uh, the, the, the word of Satan and, and evil spirits. That, that is open and uh, opposition to the one true God. I would never do such a thing. Guess what one of Saul's final acts was before he dies in battle? It's to seek to divine um, what he needs to know through the witch of Endor, right? Saul had no idea where his sin would take him. I'm sure Saul, at the end of his life, at some point must have turned his palms to the sky and said, I can't believe what I've become. I, th I thought I was a good Hebrew boy. I, was, I thought I was a good, you know, Jewish kid. I was a good Israelite. Now look at what's become of me. And sometimes we can get overwhelmed because when our sin is revealed, we get a glimpse, we're exposed, we get a glimpse into how bad we can be, how bitter we can be, how selfish, how cruel we can be when our sin is shown for what it is. But the great news is that the grace of God is not done saving us. And part of the realization of the depth of our need is for the purpose of the heights of God's transformation in us, right? So that grace can do its work in saving us anew, in new and new ways. Someone has said, or actually I'm sure it's been said many times, I could never, I could never be a Christian. I wouldn't want to be a Christian. I couldn't become a Christian because if I, if I became a Christian, I would be a terrible Christian. I, I think the right response to that is you're absolutely right, and you will be. You'll be terrible at it. Guys, the Christian life is not difficult. Again, it's impossible, and that's how it was designed. I'm a terrible Christian. But the Lord in his mercy by grace is still saving me, saving me, constantly saving me. That's the gospel. That's what I will die for. That's what you and I will give ourselves for because, because we know of no other hope, right? Come and be a terrible Christian. Join the party, right? And let the grace of God continually save you every day of your life. So whenever you find corruption in your heart, brother, sister, just remember grace is not done saving you. And the seeing of that need is part of his rescue. The command of this passage, work out your salvation, is one that is meant to be a uh, uh, it is meant to cast us back upon the bedrock of what Christ has done. Lord, I fall short, and I continue to fall short, and I can't do it. But you have worked in me. Grace has been in me, so I'll go back there. And, and the command is to now work that out. So the, the statement here that grace is not done saving, that God is not done saving, that myriad of other ways I'm going to save it today, say it today, that statement is, is, is both a command and it's a provision. It's both a duty and it's a hope. It's both a prescription 
and a provision. Grace is not done saving you. So that reality reminds me um, that I have a duty to continue to grow more in Christ-likeness because God designed by this deposit of grace he put in me to not leave me like that. So I can't just rest on my lords and go, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well this week. I gave some money, so now I can go be selfish or whatever. I sat and I listened for that person to that person for a long time, so now it's time to go and be the center of attention or whatever it might be. No, there's duty, but at the same time, there's also a help. When I do see my sin, to realize, Lord, you're not done, are you? You're never done saving me until that day you save. Brother, sister, God is supernaturally active in you. God is supernaturally active in you today. No matter how defeated you have, defeated you have felt this week, turn that over to the Lord. Let that reminder be part of what the work that grace is doing to save you more deeply. It means you can't be indifferent to the promptings of God's spirit. No, you are at work. You're calling me now. But you also don't have to be defeated by your latest failure. How is it then that we are commanded to work out this salvation? Well, the spirit tells us here with fear and trembling. If I had to summarize that, I would say the point is, is just not in self-reliance. It's, again, just casting us back upon the bedrock of grace. It's not in self-sufficiency. Okay, I just need to work harder to be better at, you know, these things. I need to be more disciplined. Discipline has its place. Accountability has its place. All of these things are means that God uses. But at the end of the day, what it means in fear and trembling means coming in reliance upon Christ. Lord, let your grace save me afresh in this area. I didn't realize I need to be delivered here. But what I've become, I don't like. But I know this is what you came to save me from. This is where you came to deliver me. So, Lord, I'm here. Give me your wisdom. Give me your help. Give me your want to. Oh, Lord, by your grace. Keep saving me. That would be, I think, one simple way to summarize the takeaway in a simple application for this week. Make it a prayer. Oh, Lord, keep saving me because grace is not done. And you see grace continue to save you, don't you? I see grace continue to save me when I ask time and time Again, and it's wonderful. First hope we have to progress in this high calling of humility and in any area of our sanctification in Christ-likeness is that grace is not done saving you. Second, God is not done working in you. Verse 13, God is not done working in you. This is what he says, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The emphasis here is, is that there is a power in you that is a God power. Um, I, I know it says the same thing, but I think the emphasis is this. The one who is at work in you or the thing that is your, your energy, your power, is nothing less than God. That's the emphasis of the passage. 
The one working in you. Are you kidding me? It's God who's working in you. Oh, this is such a glorious encouragement because it means I'm never left to my own resources. <laughs> it means you are never limited to your own desires, to your own wisdom, to your own understanding and your own strength. There is one working in you, and he's always working in you. Paul read from Romans 8 today. It reminds me of what it says in Romans 8, that the one who is a child of God is always being led by the Spirit of God. I may or may not be listening. I may or may not be following. But the Spirit of God is always leading those who are his children. And the one who's working in you, and he's always working in you, is God himself. And, and guess what? He never gets tired. He's never unwilling. He's never unable. And he's the one working in you. So the grace that, that I need to hate sin, when I don't hate sin, and I find that I like my sin, the grace that I need is found in God. Because he hates sin, and he's happy to give me that same right understanding of its destruction. When I need a, a love of truth, I don't want to hear that right now, Lord. But I know that you love truth, and you always love what's true. And you are willing to give me that same love. Would you give me that the power that you need to follow Christ, that is yours because the one working in you is no one less than God. All of it is there because of God's presence. As you rehearse the truths of your identity in Christ, as you come back and rehearse the, the gospel, both agreeing with God about your shortcoming and agreeing with God about what he's done for you in Christ and who you now are because of him, he renews you and he is working in you. What is it then that he is working in you? What is he actually doing? Well, the verse says for us, verse says that God is working to produce in us desires and deeds. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work. In other words, God is working in you desires, willingness. Have you ever needed that? Someone has said the doing of the thing is actually the far easier part. It's the willingness. <laughs> That's the harder part. But he not only works in us the willingness, he also works in us the working. He works in us the actual deeds. So the willing and the working is, is God saving you from rebellion and making you willing. And the working in you the working is producing in you spiritually effective obedience. Okay, Lord, I know what I should do now. I need to go confess something. I need to go gently confront someone. I need to go humble myself and ask for wisdom. But I don't want to, and it's not going to be easy. Well, the one who works in you to produce the willing and the doing is God himself. And that is great, great news. If we settle there on our knees, who is in charge? If we will settle, who is in charge? Then everything else follows, doesn't it? 
At least it can. Oh, there may be twists and turns and bumps in the road along the way. But if we're willing to say, oh, Lord, keep working in me. Oh, Lord, keep saving me. Keep working in me. And I think that's the right application of what Paul has for us here, what the Spirit is calling to you and me today. Lastly, in 13, I just want you to notice how God does it. It is God who produces the, the willing and the working. And why does he do it? Just because he likes it. For his good pleasure. Out of his sovereign good design, he just likes to give good gifts to his children. And it is his good pleasure to create in us willingness and fruit, doingness. Now that's sweet. When we wrestle with the willingness of our own hearts and we say, Lord, I'm not willing, but I'm willing to be willing. Are you willing to make me willing? He says, oh, I so will for you to be willing because it's my good pleasure to make you willing. Third hope we have to progress in this high calling of humility and in any area of sanctification and Christ-likeness, new birth is not done reshaping you. Verses 14 and 15, new birth is not done reshaping you. Do all things. Paul hasn't left his topic. There's a paragraph break in my translation, but I don't know that there needs to be. In fact, I would say it's a continuation of what's in 12 and 13. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, he says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. One of the reasons I think that this is a continuation of what he has just said is that we find the exact opposite side of the very same coin that he has just mentioned. How are we to do this? He says, do it all without grumbling and disputing. Um, I think that this is basically the opposite of the fear and trembling. Working out our salvation in fear is coming not in our own sufficiency, but in reliance upon God. Grumbling, on the other hand, remember the Israelites? Was looking at what God did and how he did it and saying, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that was okay, but I totally would have done it this way. And deciding we're smarter. Deciding we know better. Deciding we wanted a different way. Grumbling against God is the opposite of fear and trembling. I think the, the background of this verse is the Exodus generation, by the way. I'll, I'll show you one reason for that. Not just because of the word grumbling, oh, that's a big one. Uh, disputing is another word in Scripture that has to do with this idea of having a dialogue or an argument. Grumbling and disputing could be just horizontal in this passage, 14. Do all things without just being a big, bad grumbler and fighting with everybody, right? That could be what it meant, what it means. But I'm inclined to think that it's grumbling and disputing with God, um, which if we get that right, will solve the horizontal problem. If I solve the vertical problem, the horizontal problem's more likely to take care of itself. I'm admitting here that there is room to go either way, but I'm very much inclined, um, partly just because of the, the powerful language uh, and the connection to Exodus, and partly because the word used here for um, disputing or arguing is one used with uh, what the uh, 
uh, religious leaders did with Jesus, right, on many occasions, partly because it just fits so well with the opposite side of fear and trembling. And those are some of my reasons. Um, do this with me, though, if you will, if you want to, or just write it down. I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy 32 very quickly. Deuteronomy 32, this is that Exodus generation. And I just want to read to you verse 5. If you don't want to turn there, just jot it down. You can read it on your own time. Um, Moses uh, gives the Israelites uh, basically uh, a sermon right before he passes. And, and it's, it, it's, a, it's in the form of a poetry. In fact, I almost think it's a song that he leaves with them, that it would be memorable and that they would sing it and they would forever remember it. Um, and it's kind of not an easy song to sing because part of the song is the reminder that they have rebelled against God. <laughs> so, hey, let's go sing the song about what wretches we are, okay? Uh, but here's the, I'm just giving you that context to explain. Here's the descriptions, Deuteronomy 32.5, of the generation from God's perspective, um, through Moses. They have acted corruptly. They have acted corruptly toward God. They are not his children because of their um, corruption, but they are a perverse and crooked generation. Okay, here's the point. Did you see or hear any, any words in verse 5 that sound familiar? Philippians 2. Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. A full phrase and at least two or three other words, almost a direct quote, definitely an allusion to Deuteronomy 32.5. Here's the point of all of that. And guys, it's not depressing. It's incredibly encouraging. Here's the point of all of that. You know what Paul does in Philippians 2? For these believers in Philippi, some of whom probably knew their Old Testament very, very well, he, he comes to them and he said, he says, remember how God told the Exodus generation, after all my miracles, you guys have grumbled and you've argued against me? You're not my children. It's as though you're not my children. That's what Moses tells the generation. Now, he says a lot more than that. It doesn't end there, thankfully. But here's the good news. Paul writes to these Philippians, and he says, remember that? He goes, guess what? You guys, Philippians, you are his children. You are the generation. You, in fact, shine as lights in the midst of that perverted and corrupt generation in which you live, where you are in its midst. You are the generation. I think the Philippians had to hear this and in the context of the Exodus generation go, oh, Lord God, may it be so. May it be me. May that be us. May we stand as children of God and shine like lights. What high honor you have just described to us, Paul. That's what they would say. God is not done working in you. An ironic statement, a surprise statement in how he alludes to Deuteronomy 32.5. And he says, you, in fact, prove to be. Remember, again, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless. If you do this, to whatever degree you do, without grumbling 
and disputing, with fear and trembling, asking, oh God, let your grace work in me. Oh oh God, save me afresh. If and as you do that, you will prove yourselves to be the generation of God's chosen one. Brothers and sisters, our resolve wanes. Our interests get divided. We grow dull in our appetite for him. We are constantly fed uh, other things to make us want us to be thirsty for them all the time. And yet grace still has not let you go. Though, though you can spend hours scrolling alone only to get up and feel like an empty shell and find your affections have gone out to a million vain things, yet grace is not done. Grace is yet still saving you, and God is still working in you. And the coals of his keeping spirit now even now, still glow in you till one day if you will come back to his word and through prayer and the work of his spirit fan them into flame till one day you will shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Oh, that's the great news. The Philippians will never read Deuteronomy 32 the same the rest of their lives. They'll go, we get to be what God intended by his spirit at work in us. Okay. I read 14 and 15, right? The new new birth is not done reshaping you. I got so excited, I had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) So it's this new birth now. Yeah, Frank, you're reading verse 14. Okay, right. Uh, You are children of God because you've been born again. And that deposit and that new birth lives in you. And it is continually changing you so that you and I don't look like the generation of those around us. We are meant to go against the flow. We are meant to look different in all that we are and all that we do. Malcolm Muggeridge was a a British uh, journalist and a a social commentator from the 20th century, um, if you don't know that name. Um, At the age of 66, Malcolm Muggeridge left uh, his agnosticism, and he turned and gave his life to Christ at the age of 66. Pretty cool. For years, he had seen the atrophy of Western society. In 1980, uh, in his work titled The End of Christendom, because he had, he had seen the decay in the West, uh, his culture and the West at large. Um, so he wrote a book called The End of Christendom. Um, sounds depressing. It's not. It's just the opposite. Uh, and he wrote with surprising hope. Uh, see what you think about these words over 40 years after they were penned in 1980. Let us then as Christians rejoice that we see around us on every hand the decay of the institutions institutions and instruments of power. We see intimations of empires falling to pieces, money in total disarray, dictators and parliamentarians alike nonplussed by the confusion and conflicts which encompass them. 
For it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when every recourse this world offers, moral as well as material, has been explored to no effect, when in the shivering cold the last twig has been thrown on the fire, and in the gathering darkness every glimmer of light has finally flickered out, it's then that Christ's hand reaches out sure and firm. Then Christ's words will bring inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightest, abolishing the darkness forever. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among you whom you appear as lights in the world. We are ambassadors of Christ's light. We are carriers of his word. We are witnesses to his grace. And new birth is not yet done, reshaping us from what the world would conform us to, the mold that it would press us into. Our new birth is calling us to a different end. By this new life that now lives in you, you shine more and more. As you follow not the path of this world, its thinking, or even its means of winning, but that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, Lord, keep reshaping me. Keep reshaping me. Fourth and finally, the hope that we have to progress in this high calling of humility and in every area of sanctification and growth in Christ-likeness is this, the gospel is not done rescuing you. The gospel is not done rescuing you. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I know I picked up mid-sentence. He says the way in which they will prove themselves the way in which they will shine as lights is by holding fast to the word. And specifically in context, I think that's the saving word of the gospel. All of God's word in general, but the saving word of the gospel in particular. You are to cling to it. You are to hold fast to it. This is why we rehearse the gospel so often. Believers find the saving word of the gospel all over the scriptures. Believers can't read anywhere in the Bible and help but find the saving word of the gospel in it somewhere, either some intimation of our brokenness or some clear statement of God's goodness, either some benefit that comes through the saving work of Christ or some motivation to more greatly seek it out. The entire book of the Bible is, is the foundation for the gospel, and it is the theme and the heartbeat that, that is woven throughout. There is not a single day of your life that you do not need the, the rescue of the gospel. There's not a single day of my life that I do not need, oh, I don't need today, the gospel to rescue me. And yet the Lord does that for me, and he does that for you. He rescues you every day from what otherwise would be rebellion and uh, 
your and my own superior wisdom. He does that all the time, doesn't he? And even when we fail, he's good to not give up because God is always working and, and this new birth is always living and calling. And afterwards, we stop and we look back and we go, oh, yeah, that didn't work. So, wow, I didn't let the gospel rescue me. But now let's start here. Oh, Lord, keep rescuing me. Oh, Lord, keep saving me. I want you to notice Paul in his fatherly love for this, these believers, a final motivation that he mentions at this point. Um, he's already said before, hey, make my joy complete so that I will hear that you stand firm in one spirit, right? That was the end of chapter 1. And now here he said it again in chapter 2, not only in my presence, but all the more so in my absence. If you will let the gospel save you today, Philippians, Paul says, then it means everything I've done is not in vain. If, if you will let grace rescue you again today, then that, that will be what I'm prouder of than anything else I know. That will be my boast. That will be my glory. I got to be a small part of the God of the universe at work in your lives, Paul says. How do you think the Philippians received that? Oh, you mean we could make Paul happy? We could make him pleased. This one whom we honor and respect and we've seen suffer, it is so attractive to be living like he lives. I would want his honor and esteem. And that's just the minutest glimpse of the honor and esteem of the Lord God who rejoices over his sons and daughters and who, who shows with pride Gabriel and Michael. Did you see that one? Did you see what's going on there? Look, look at what I'm doing in their life. See how the grace I've given her still rescues her. See how this new life I've birthed in him lives in him and the humility that comes out of his mouth. That's glorious. Paul ends here with the thrill of knowing that he is shared in the beauty of God's work in the lives of others. The great news for us and the great call for us, brothers and sisters, is that God is not done saving. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Lord, our God, we thank you so much that you save us fully, finally, completely, irrevocably through Christ, your son, and that nothing can snatch us out of his hands and that nothing can snatch us out of your almighty hands, he has told us. And yet, Lord, we praise you because you also still are saving us. Rescue us this week, Lord. Let us come back to grace often and, and let that grace do its work in us. Lord, if any here this morning do not know this grace, don't know you as a father, haven't come to that place where they know this covering and protecting and cleansing love and this new birth and this wonderful grace and new life, 
Lord, our God, we ask, would you make them thirsty? Would you convict them of their deep and dire need? Would you open their eyes to the brilliance of your goodness, of a gospel that not only saves them once and for all, but every day that they breathe? Lord, we ask, um, let us this week walk worthy as gospel citizens. And as we grow in humility and grow in Christ-likeness, may all of it bring you glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.